Welcome to the Moving Forward Podcast. This is your anchoring host, Rio, and we have a guest on today, Kareem Rafai, who is an anti-authoritarian activist. Say hi, Kareem. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. You're very welcome. I've been following you on Twitter for a while, and I have to say you're one of the more interesting people I follow on Twitter. You usually have a very nice globalist take um, and an anti-populist take that is all too rare, and it comes from a foreign policy perspective that a lot of progressives who like to think of themselves as anti-authoritarian uh, would do well to hear because being anti-authoritarian doesn't necessarily mean being a pacifist. It doesn't mean being neutral. In fact, by definition, it means standing up to authoritarian regimes. Would you agree? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I always think of that one quote. I always like <laughs> quote it wrong, but it's something like when you do nothing, you're standing with the side of the oppressor. And I think in a lot of ways, like, anti-interventionism and like ultra pacifism kind of embodies that kind of like passive standing with the oppressor in a lot of ways. So I always revert to that when people talk about, you know, anti-interventionism. Yeah, I've I've gotten in the habit of standing up for all of the boogeymen of the alt-right and the far left these days. I call myself a globalist. I call myself pro-establishment. I call myself uh, pro-free trade. I call myself anti-populist. Um, all of those fun things. Uh, so, Kareem, tell us a little bit about your own bio. Like, why did you get into this activist work? So, I'm actually a sophomore undergrad at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor. Um, I'm studying international security with a focus on Latin America, uh, communications, and Asian studies with a focus on Japan. Um, I am Syrian-American. Both of my parents were born in Aleppo, Syria. Um, Both can no longer return to the country. My mom is a really active, also anti-authoritarian advocate. She focuses, obviously, on anti-Assad activism. Uh, She works with, like, D.C. groups. Um, I also work with the same D.C. groups. I am also the co-founder of Students for Biden at the University of Michigan, which is either the first or second largest chapter in the nation with over 300 members. Um, yeah, that's that's mostly it. I mean, uh, obviously, I got really into you know anti-authoritarian activism after the start of the Syrian revolution. I was pretty young. I think I was like 11 when things really like got started. Uh, I thought my future was going to be in like business or something, but as I got older and as my, you know, parents got more involved in activism, I kind of saw how important it was to kind of their identity and my identity as a Syrian American to like be involved in what's going on and not only the country I'm living in and the country where I was born, but also, you know, like my homeland. So I kind of pivoted and I decided that I was going to study, you know, political related stuff and yeah here we are now (laughs) i'm doing a lot of stuff on twitter um i'm also writing for the michigan daily uh yeah and right now i'm focusing on the bolivian elections that are happening next week i'm sure you've seen on my feed um and also just you know middle eastern stuff iran syria Right. So I take it you don't think that Obama is this evil, horrible, neocon, fascist shill for standing um, up for democracy um, on the global stage? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely not. And I think that, um, you know, his foreign policy was definitely a mixed bag for me, but it was because of his anti-interventionist stance on Syria and him um, not following through with his red line. Uh, after Assad used, you know, chemical weapons and everything. So, yeah, I definitely uh, do not agree with the uh, Obama is a war criminal narrative that the far left seems to be having fun with. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> if anything, he was a little bit too weak um, in, in standing up against authoritarianism. Oh, and yeah. What, what do you think about the uh, Trump administration's foreign policy so far? I was actually having like a discussion about this yesterday on Twitter And I really hate painting with a broad brush. Like, obviously, I very much dislike Donald Trump. I'm literally leading one of the biggest, you know, youth 
like grassroots youth movements in Michigan to elect Joe Biden uh, to like into the White House. But uh, I don't like painting his foreign policy with this broad brush of like, oh my God, it's really horrible. Obviously, I think it's extremely erratic. In lots of situations, it's extremely poor. You know, his attacking NATO, his attacking, uh, you know, the UN, um, uh, really haphazard troop withdrawals in Syria, uh, Germany, Iraq. Um, But I think the one thing that kind of stands out is his stance on Iran, which is kind of, you know, the striking difference between him and Obama. Obama kind of softballed Iran a little bit with the JCPOA. And uh, Trump got rid of the JCPOA, is putting, I think, the most severe sanctions on Iran in, like, recent history, um, contributing to, you know, the failure of the Syrian, um, you know, oligarchy uh, in terms of, like, the Syrian economy and everything, because it's all controlled in the hands of very few. And, you know, Iran funds terror networks in Iraq and Yemen and Lebanon in Syria. So seeing the effects of, you know, Pompeo's actions on Iran is makes me pretty happy, but everywhere else it's pretty poor. So I don't know, it's a really mixed bag. And I don't know if you know this, but most, you know, like very hardline anti-regime Iranians are voting for Trump. Um, Tons of Syrians this cycle because of those sanctions on Iran are also voting for Trump. Uh, obviously, it's not enough for me because I care about our democracy uh, in the U.S. and a lot of other, you know, social issues, economic issues. But um, I really hate this, like, broad brush uh, kind of attitude about his foreign policy. Like, is it erratic? Yes. Is it net bad? Yes. Are there aspects that are, you know, working a little bit? I would say Iran. <laughs> uh, I don't know about anywhere else, but Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's a it's kind of hit and miss for me with Iran as well, though, because, of course, you know, I can understand uh, wanting to be tough and, and putting sanctions on it and so forth. But if it results in, in them being able to build a nuclear weapon, that's not good. Oh, right. Of course. But I think that argument, you know, also is part of the discourse. And I personally don't believe that Iran was ever abiding by the JCPOA. Uh, like from the start. And I think it was definitely starting to unravel before um, Trump decided to get rid of it. And I think the, you know, national security experts that were advocating to get rid of it also held the same belief that Iran was not actually following the guidelines set by the JCPOA. And if that were to be true, then all we did was unfreeze billions of dollars in assets and place them right into the Mullah's hands in order to continue funding, you know, this terror network in Syria, propping up the Assad regime propping up Hezbollah in Lebanon, etc. So, I mean, I definitely think that if they were abiding by the JCPOA, that maybe dismantling it was not the best idea. But I don't see a lot of evidence indicating that they were. And their actions surrounding, you know, inspectors and all that stuff over these past few years have been really, you know, sketchy. So obviously, I don't want to see a nuclear weapon in Iran's hands, for sure. That's true. But without an agreement, there's no way to actually make them allow us to inspect. Right, exactly. And that's why I'm kind of, you know, in favor of Joe Biden renegotiating a JCPOA. But obviously, I think it should be a lot stricter. I think the original JCPOA was not really the best move, especially in terms of, you know, the unfreezing of so much of, you know, the Iranian government's assets and everything. Um, but you know, I'm not completely against the renegotiation of JCPOA and I am voting for Joe Biden. So I know that's going to (laughs) be happening. His campaign has confirmed it, uh, multiple times that he'll be renegotiating the JCPOA. So, yeah, I think, I think erratic is the right way to talk about Trump's administration. And I think that's because, and I'd be interested to know what your take on this is, seems to me like Donald Trump has absolutely no interest in actually running the government the executive branch. I think he just wants to be the reality TV president um, focused on campaigning. You know, it's it's ironic because I called Obama the campaigner in chief, but Trump really is the campaigner in chief. And so what that means is his foreign policy is entirely based on just who, who he happens to put in charge of it at any given moment. And he, he's not interested in in it at all, except in so far as it might impact his ability to get reelected. That's it. Absolutely. He's, 
absolutely a showboater. And I think that, you know, people like to say, oh, like Trump uh, lied about, you know, pulling out all the troops and being super anti-war and all this stuff and bringing the troops home. But in, in essence, he is a populist when it comes to foreign policy. Even when he does, you know, what could be perceived as hawkish, like, for example, most notoriously, the missile strike on Soleimani. That is like the ultimate, you know, hawk move against Iran. But why did he do that? It garnered a lot of support from the right, you know? It's like, it makes him look like a strong man. Same thing with uh, the killing of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Yeah, not to mention that Hillary Clinton would have done both of those things and not betrayed the Kurds. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, that's the disheartening thing is that Trump has no strategy. It's all about, you know, rehabilitating his reputation that's in progress. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and that's what's really bothersome to me is that there's absolutely no cohesion. And, and that's what I don't understand either about, you know, fellow Syrians and Iranians that are deciding to vote for Trump, because Hillary Clinton would have do- done these same things, like getting rid of Soleimani, you know, getting rid of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, but it would have come with a cohesive response that I'm sure at least would have paid a little bit more attention to, you know, the actions afterwards. Like, what do we do after we kill Soleimani? What do we do after we kill Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi other than, you know, showboat about it for months on end and practically do nothing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 I really think that a Biden administration will be much more hawkish um, than a lot of people believe. Uh, I think it's part of the reason why the Lincoln Project and uh, basically, frankly, a lot of neoliberal, neoconservative, old old guard Republican ex-establishment um, are just throwing themselves behind Biden. I mean, Cindy McCain just didn't did an ad for Biden. Yeah, I mean, this isn't like, I love this because I'm rehashing like the discourse I have every single day with especially like Syrian Americans who are kind of like, not sure whether to vote Trump or Biden for, you know, because Syrian Americans are usually forefront foreign policy voters. So um, I think this notion that he's going to be ultra hawkish might be a little bit misguided. Like, I don't want to have to bite my tongue in a couple of months. But I mean, I think the one thing that should be really paid attention to, especially when it comes to, you know, Biden's future MENA policy, is that he is very, 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 very critical of Erdogan. Extremely critical of Erdogan. And Erdogan is very deserving of critique. But in the current, you know, state of the Middle East, where you have Iran and Russia, you know, intervening everywhere, Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, etc., being hypercritical of a very close what should be a very close ally, a NATO ally, um, who's essentially fighting a war on behalf of the UN and Libya, um, is a little bit concerning to me. Obviously, I have tons of problems with Erdogan uh, in terms of his treatment of ethnic minorities like the Kurds, his authoritarian tendencies, etc. But um, generally, I think when you look at you know an extremely hawkish individual, they usually kind of overlook those faults in favor of fighting back against, you know, the malignant superpowers they're pushing back against. Uh, You can see that, you know, with Egypt and everything, how Obama was kind of silent on um, the authoritarianism of the Egyptian regime. Uh, I think he refused to call, I don't remember if it was Mubarak or Sisi, a dictator, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's a little bit concerning to me when it comes to policy countering Iran when he's uh, not very favorable of Turkey and Erdogan, but I don't know. Things just continue to get more and more complicated, especially with, you know, Azerbaijan and Armenia flaring up. It's just like the whole region is just uh, boiling to multiple flashpoints. It seems like there is no end to the climax. It's just repeated disaster after disaster after disaster. Within one year, we have, Suleimani, we have the crisis in Iraq, we have the explosion in Lebanon, we have the Syrian economy collapsing, we have the war breaking out between Armenia and um, Azerbaijan. Um, It's just, and of course, the war that continues to rage on in Yemen, there just seems to be no end. And I don't know if Biden having this like one foot in, one foot out, I don't like Iran or Turkey attitude will lead to anything productive. But, you know, 
who knows? <laughs> We're waiting to see. Yeah, it's a messy business, but I mean, to clarify, I don't think that Biden is as hawkish as Clinton, right? Oh, for sure. Um, but the alternative is essentially an isolationist in Donald Trump, of course. Um, who every now and then does something <laughs> because somebody in, in his administration is hawkish, not because he is. Exactly. Um, the, the way I look at it, it is it is complicated and yes you have to to play with bad actors sometimes but really what i would prefer to see is something like a a new un with teeth where you basically have all of the liberal democracies of the world come together and collectively cut out every single nation that is not a liberal democracy um, from from an otherwise totally open free trade agreement i think that that would be much more effective than these unilateral uh, ways of going about it that that Trump does sporadically. Oh no, abs- absolutely, and I think that things like the TPP would have functioned as like a precursor to something like that. And it's really disheartening to see that under, I think, in my personal opinion, under Obama and under Trump, we pushed our allies away in different ways. So yeah, it's really disheartening, and I, yeah, I'm not excited to have to you know collaborate with bad actors like Erdogan. But in the state of the world that we're in now, the purity tests that we're assigning are just impossible, <laughs> especially in the Middle East. Every single one of those leaders is an absolute disaster, and, like including our biggest ally, like Netanyahu, is also a disaster. There's just no there's no good actor to work with. Saudi Arabia, disaster. Um, it's just it's really disheartening, honestly. And I wish that our allies in Europe would have a firmer hand, too. I think Macron is unbelievably horrible when it comes to his foreign policy the fact that he's backing um a warlord in libya against the un is just absolutely mind-boggling to me um i think if our own like strong democratic like liberal democratic allies were stronger we wouldn't have to resort on to this dependence on turkey but we are left with no options we have a germany that does nothing uh, Britain that does nothing, a France that actively works against us, a Spain that's in economic crisis 24-7. Like, what are we supposed to do? A, a Greece that's t- uh, turning away refugee boats. And like, what was that story that came out? They were like intentionally sinking refugee boats or something. It's just absolutely awful. Like, where are our allies? And yeah, what are no, we supposed I, to do? I agree. And it definitely doesn't help that we have the quote leader of the free world is turning his back on the free world and cozying up to dictators. I mean, Donald Trump, the way I think about him, frankly, is he's essentially trying to be the leader of the unfree world. He's not somebody who's motivated by anti-authoritarianism. He's somebody who is motivated by wanting to be the biggest fish in, in an authoritarian global space. Absolutely. It's, it's all about being the strong man. And that's why I don't, support his foreign policy cohesively at all because there is no cohesion individual actions like am i glad that Soleimani is dead yes anyone who is you know anti-genocide should be happy that Soleimani is dead what you should be unhappy about is that trump's foreign policy regarding you know the killing of Soleimani and just middle east in the middle east in general is extremely poor if you have extreme sanctions on iran you have to follow up with something you don't just cripple the iranian economy and then do absolutely nothing there's absolutely no cohesion. Yeah. And and what do you think about how Trump's handled North Korea? Oh, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, especially in the state that South Korea is right now with Moon Jae-in and everything. It's just unbelievable to me, his actions with North Korea and the fact that he criticizes, um, I mean, like criticizes other people for in the past softballing with Castro he was softballing with Kim Jong-un just three years ago, who is a horrible like dictator. So yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's just unbelievable to me. And I think when people will read about this era in the history books, they'll be extremely confused when they see pictures of Donald Trump meeting with um, Kim Jong-un and then followed by images of, you know, a bombed out, you know, Soleimani. It's just absolutely no cohesion at all. Right. And of course, uh, Trump just got the Taliban's endorsement. <laughs> yeah, I saw that on Twitter. I didn't even click the trending hashtag. I was like, 
What a disaster. <laughs> Unbelievable. And he didn't even have to have them to count Camp David to do it. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that um, I think I read somewhere that it said that they endorsed him and then hoped that he would continue troop withdrawal. It's like the absolute just cringiness of the far left, like celebrating troop withdrawal in Afghanistan and the Middle East, just like with no nuance at all. And then the Taliban themselves say, please reelect Trump so that he can withdraw troops from the Middle East. Like, you're literally siding with the Taliban on this policy. Like, yeah, when you find yourself when your anti-war stance has you de facto or even explicitly <laughs> siding with the Taliban, maybe it's time to uh, reconsider, reconsider the, the benefits of neoconservatism. I, I mean, it's not even about like neoconservatism. It's just about having a semblance of a global presence countering these like very bad actors. Like I think everyone can unilaterally agree that the Taliban is a bad actor. You don't have to be a neoconservative or a neoliberal. You just have to be pro democracy, pro human rights and pro American values to not want the Taliban to gain power. And I think anyone who knows anything about basic foreign policy knows that power vacuums exist when U S troops leave Bad actors take over in the Middle East, especially. I mean, we literally saw when Trump withdrew from the middle uh, from Syria, he had to go back within two weeks. It was such a disaster. Videos were coming out within a couple of days of Russian troops taking over former American um, like posts in northern Syria and raising up the Russian flag. Like, what did you think was going to happen? And leftists were applaud- applauding it applauding Trump withdrawing from Syria. It's just absolutely mind boggling. Yeah. It's one of many, many, many ways that they're basically allies with the alt-right. Oh, for sure. When it comes to foreign policy, absolutely. 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 Oh, and trade. Absolutely. Like if, if your foreign policy views are aligning with neo-Nazis, maybe let's take a second and understand why that's happening and what's wrong with your views. Uh, It's, absolutely mind-boggling to me because you're aligning with trump on issues where it's very plain and obvious that he's made the wrong move i i cannot believe that we did not learn from that troop withdrawal from syria in understanding why we shouldn't haphazardly remove troops from extremely volatile situations um in syria it wasn't even a volatile situation that we caused we came in to help it was a bloody war that was perpetuated by Assad and uh, the other side, which was hoping for free democracy. And we came in to help and protect. And then we just leave. I, I It's un, unbelievable to me. Why are you, why would anyone celebrate us leaving a country where we're trying to protect human rights and trying to promote democracy and supporting a popular uprising, which leftists are apparently all about, all about popular uprisings, except when it's to overthrow dictators that they don't like. So it's just very frustrating. The double standard is absolutely ridiculous. And you can see it with Bolivia too. It was hundreds of thousands of Bolivians on the streets protesting for Evo Morales to be removed from office after those fraudulent elections. Even to this day in September, the majority of Bolivians believe that he committed voter fraud. It's just unbelievable to me, the double standard. Yeah, and I mean, not even neo-Nazis, just Nazis. I mean, the uh, America First movement originally was a pro-Hitler uh, movement leading up to World War II is people who opposed the U.S. involvement in World War II. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's always been, in terms of isolationism and protectionism in the U.S., there has always been xenophobia and racism r- deeply rooted inside it and anti-Semitism. Um, it, it goes back for over a hundred years it's yeah there are only two kinds of isolationists there's nazis and then there's stupid people who are allying with nazis without realizing it that's it i think i think there's arguments to me to be had about you know protecting like union jobs and making sure that there's not you know severe job loss because of free trade agreements but i think often those arguments are mired with again xenophobic sentiment like in terms of, you know, NAFTA and the USMCA talking about how on the far left, 
up until five years ago, Bernie was saying that um, free trade causes job loss for the American worker, while Donald Trump says free trade causes uh, job loss to Mexicans. It's the exact same rhetoric, just worded differently. So, I mean, there's definitely an argument to say that, you know, uh, jobs are getting outsourced because of free trade. Like, yes, there's a history of that happening. On the scale that people are saying that it did, no. There's evidence that it was because of automation, et cetera, blah, 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 blah. Well, and also, let's just be clear about this. I mean, I don't see how you could take that position without being a xenophobe, right? Because essentially what you're saying is the jobs of people who happen to be born in America count for more than other people, that you don't think that black and brown people um, in developing countries deserve jobs. Absolutely. I totally agree. That is like my exact same opinion on the issue. And I think, I don't think people that necessarily are, uh, you know, passively against free trade are necessarily like raging xenophobes, but I think the policy itself is based on xenophobic sentiment, not wanting you know, a more developed Mexico, a richer Mexico, which in the end benefits us. I don't understand this like fear of, you know, development in Mexico and uh, deals benefiting Mexico when in reality it would benefit both us and them for them to be prosperous. Mexico is a really strong ally of the United States. So yeah, it's, it's really disheartening to see, especially with, you know, this rise in anti-free trade sentiment, especially starting with Obama and moving into Trump, even though Trump only, you know, basically only nominally changed NAFTA into the USMCA. Like I know there's some like nuanced differences, but essentially it's the same thing. So yeah, he yeah. just rebranded it. He ba- It's like buying a skyscraper and slapping Trump on it and increasing the prices. <laughs> exactly. Just another demonstration of his showboating. Like people are, people are implying that somehow he's pro, you know, free trade when he all he did was rebrand NAFTA while also enacting tons of super damaging tariffs, like absolutely no cohesion, <laughs> all showboating. Yeah. And and again, I would be in favor of collectively cutting bad actors like China out and forcing them to play by the rules of international trade. But you can't do it unilaterally while exactly. alienating all of our allies. And it makes no sense. Like, why have a trade war with Canada, too? Absolutely. It's ridiculous. And I think it's it's a really frightening sh- Well, I don't think it's, it's necessarily frightening, but it's a worrying shift that we are becoming almost completely reliant on our allies in Asia and, you know, Japan and Taiwan to counter aggression when our allies in Europe are basically sitting on their hands doing nothing. Um, and it's, it's just, <laughs> it's a really big mess. I, I think that we played a part definitely in alienating allies, but our allies in Europe are just not fulfilling, I think, their, you know, obligations to global democracy, their obligations to NATO, uh, and the way that they should be, especially when disaster is sitting on their back doorstep. They have boats of refugees coming from North Africa and the Middle East every single day. Like maybe instead of having to take millions of refugees and putting, you know, stress on, you know, the political situation in your country, because, you know, all this refugee influx causes anti-immigrant sentiment, causes the rise of far right parties, you know, in Germany and Italy and Greece, etc. Why, instead of dealing with those symptoms, do you not deal with the problem directly and stop having to have people fleeing for their lives across the Mediterranean Ocean coming into your country instead of, you know, turning them away or, you know, facing political ramifications for, you know, taking in millions of refugees. Like I'm obviously, you know, I have family that are refugees in Germany and I think Angela Merkel uh, should be applauded for her, you know, pro-refugee stance and what she's done for Syrians fleeing war. But what I'm not happy about is the fact that her and other leaders in Europe are putting very thin band-aids over a very large problem that is very visible to them on their back doorstep, while us and uh, other actors that are not in Europe have to deal with the issue, even though the U.S. is thousands of miles away. Shouldn't Europe have more obligation to do something when they're facing more of the ramifications? Like, get off your butts and do something and do what you say that you're devoted to doing, especially the NATO member countries. You're supposed to be in favor of countering Russian expansion and promoting, 
democracy and human rights. And while Russia is basically in, invading, on the brink of invading Belarus, invaded Ukraine, um, is backing um, Armenia, is uh, invading Syria, uh, invading basically every single country that lies on their border and is in Europe, they continue to do nothing. Crimea was annexed. Belarus on the brink of disaster with Russian intervention. Nothing is happening. Yeah. Meanwhile, Trump's trying to get Russia back in the G7. Unbelievable. It's just like, it's so confusing. It's like one day it's something like vaguely fine. And then the next day it's something absolutely terrible. And then more often than not, it's absolutely something terrible. And you get this glimmer of hope. You know, he killed Suleimani. Great. He killed Baghdadi. Great. And then it's just sheer disappointment the very next day. I mean, I honestly think that Trump basically is a weapon. He is, our president has been weaponized by Russian intelligence as a way of dividing Americans against one another. It's already leading to political violence in the streets. And and if Trump refuses to concede, I mean, we could have a little mini civil war on our hands. And, and that would be entirely because of Trump's own behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Like Russia intervening in our elections in 2016 was probably, you know, the smartest, most horrible thing that Putin could do. He weakened the world's leading global superpower, divided us more than we've ever been divided before. That poll that came out, well, you know, since the, weeks ago. Well, the actual civil war. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. Since our literal actual civil war. And, you know, I, I don't know if you saw that poll. But basically, the amount of Americans on the right and left who believe political violence is justified has like skyrocketed up to like 30% per party. It's just like, I don't don't quote, don't cite me on that exact statistic, but it's, it's risen. Um, yeah, no, I saw I saw the I saw a similar poll, it went from 8% to 33% in the Democratic Party. And thirty-seven percent in the Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, okay. That's so clear. That means that a full third of members of both of our major parties are pro-terrorism. That's the definition yeah. of terrorism. Political violence is terrorism. Yeah, it's very worrying. It's very worrying for me. I think the only thing that is maybe a glimmer of hope is kind of the internal implosion of uh, the major third parties. I released an article about this a couple of weeks ago, but essentially the Libertarians and the Greens are garnering way less of the vote this time around, which I think is kind of helpful. But in the end, it's kind of just a, a small like win and, you know, kind of an era of severe political divide. But I think that now with especially people on the right supporting Joe Biden, I pray that we'll have some type of restore of democracy and a restoration of, you know, America on the world stage. I think that Joe Biden's whole slogan of restoring the soul of the nation is great. And I think it's not just the soul of our nation, but the soul of our world. So hoping that future Biden administration will kind of stop this extreme bipartisanship. But who knows? Yeah, it's kind of ironic that the number one thing that's counting against Joe Biden with the, the demographics you mentioned, right? So these are groups of people that you would think progressives would want to champion immigrants from you know Iran and Syria and Cuba, etc. But like they don't care about those people at all as their behavior stays says over and over again. I mean they have I can understand how especially low information voters from those groups might think that, you know, maybe they have nowhere to go but Donald Trump, because unfortunately, Biden is associated with these far lefties, even though he's actually uh, not as um, uh, isolationist and protectionist as Trump is. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would call them necessarily low information, but more acting very exclusively in their own best interest um, in terms of it, it, it's like. I don't fault people for voting and, and what they perceive to be their best interest. Um, but don't front and say that you're voting for someone that you don't know. I think that's very, you know, misleading. That was like a whole thing with the DSA being like, Oh, I'm going to vote for someone that I don't know, except that they villainize every single immigrant group that doesn't fall in line with, you know, their foreign policy ideology I mean, Cubans are definitely the biggest victims of this one. And then they wonder why, you know, um, 
it, I mean, the DSA or their economic ideology, because for obvious reasons, Cubans aren't super keen on socialism. Oh no, exactly, exactly. And I think that um, the DSA itself, I saw like on one of their pages that they recognize that they have a problem with diversity. Like, I don't know, maybe you're having a problem with diversity because your ideology is extremely inaccessible, not only for you know disadvantaged peoples, but especially for immigrants. So don't pretend to be a champion for people that you don't know when in reality you're being a champion for yourself and people who look like you and are from the same place that you are. Yeah. And, you know, maybe the DSA could learn a thing or two about people who have immigrated to the U.S. because they were escaping countries that already tried and failed at what the DSA wants to do. Oh, well, yeah, but they've already they've already made their mechanism to dismiss those people. Everyone who fled Cuba. According to them, everyone that fled Cuba is somehow simultaneously a former Batista um, official, also a plantation farmer, and a slave owner simultaneously at the same time. And somehow hundreds of thousands of Cubans were that exact same description, were all upper class, obviously. And that's why they all fled to Florida. It's just like absolutely mind boggling the hoops they have to jump through to try and dismiss these people. It's absolutely crazy. Like, well, and so what if they were upper class? You know what I mean? What do they think is going to happen when the <laughs> when well, the exactly. takes over capital flight happens every time? That's why it doesn't but, work. Exactly. Like, it, first of all, it, it doesn't matter if they're upper class. Two, the majority were not upper class. It's just like... There's no feasible reality where the majority of people that fled Cuba were upper class plantation slave owners or Batista regime officials. It's absolutely ridiculous. And you can look at the exact same thing in Venezuela. The people that are fleeing Venezuela are not the wealthy. The wealthy are part of that oligarchy. Like at first in the beginning when things were, you know, getting bad, of course the first people who are fleeing are the ones who have means. But as things got worse, Tons of those people fleeing, especially into neighboring South American countries, are extremely destitute. There is no reality where you can say that these people fleeing Venezuela are unilaterally upper class or very fortunate. It's just absolutely ridiculous. In reality, when you're siding with Maduro, you are siding with the rich in that country. You are siding with the oligarchy. Extremely wealthy oligarchs in Venezuela are the ones propping up Maduro. The people that have stolen oil profits away from the Venezuelan people control all the industry, control the news, control the telecom services, etc. Those are the people you are supporting when you say that, you know, you don't support Guaido and that you support Maduro. It's just a complete topsy-turvy. Like, the people who are fleeing are the ones who are destitute. The people who are in power in the government and have all the money are not the victims of, you know, imperial aggression. Yeah, yeah. It's really funny to see them talk about how horseshoe theory is bunk, and then here they are, literally the personification of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, just because you're not supporting the, you know, quote-unquote, like, 1% establishment in the U.S., doesn't mean that it gives you a free pass to support, you know, the dictator oligarchies in other countries and pretend that somehow you're righteous for doing so when there are people living in your very own backyard in the United States who have fled that regime with just the clothes on their backs or a little bit more. It's just, it's ridiculous. And that's the way that they continue to, you know, plow forward with blinders on with this unabashed, like, um, broad brush anti-imperialist policy by dismissing the stories of people who have fled to the United States. Yeah. Talk about victim blaming. Oh, absolutely. It's the, Oh my God. Like that's the best way to describe it. So in the end, you are defending the fascist oligarchs that are, or the socialist oligarchs that are forcing people to flee their country. You're absolving them of all responsibility. And then instead placing the blame on the victims of said dictatorship. And then saying that because some of them are rich, but in for them, all of them are rich. That it's okay that they had their human rights stripped away from them. It just defies all logic. You cannot say that you're pro-human rights if you're pro-Maduro or pro-Assad, etc. It's just like, <sighs> keep true to your word. Keep true to your word. If you're really voting for someone that you don't know, then, you know, do it. Instead of professing policies... Um, and professing, you know, narratives that are inherently untrue and also xenophobic. Like, if you are a white person, don't use slurs 
uh, to describe ethnicities that have different political views than you. Don't call Nikki Haley a, you know, whitewashed, uh, you know, whitewashed Punjabi because she's a Republican. Don't call Tim Scott an Uncle Tom. Don't call Cubans who vote Republican Gusano. It's not within your right. It comes off extremely racist, in my opinion. It comes off xenophobic, and there's no justification. You don't get to use, you know, racialisms and discrimination against people who have different political views than you. No, I mean, they are racist. I think many of them are. Absolutely. And I experience it every single week. I, I get a, um, a white Westerner in my mentions. Uh, like two weeks ago, uh, I someone told me that my grandparents who had their house bombed in Aleppo must have been a part of ISIS because... Assad was liberating Aleppo of ISIS, uh, apparently, quote unquote. So that means that my grandparents must be terrorists. Like, tell me in any, like, any way of spinning that, that is not playing on the racist trope that Muslims are terrorists. It's just ridiculous. Or I'll get uh, white Westerners accusing me of being an Erdogan supporter simply because I am anti-Assad and I'm Sunni Muslim. Like, they're playing the sectarianism without even knowing the situation of the region. And they're using it against the minorities that supposedly they really care about. So and in practice, I don't... in practice, they have no foreign policy other than just stick your head in the sand and let the world go to hell around us and hope it doesn't come crashing down on our borders. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And some of them go even further. They're in favor of uh, dishing out benefits to bad actors. Like, I don't understand this whole, like, oh, the U.S. is supporting, you know, dictators like Erdogan. It's so horrible. They're supporting all these fascists. And then they turn around and want to, you know, give power to Iran to continue basically colonizing all the countries around them, continue to let Maduro commit all these, you know, human rights abuses, ending all these sanctions that are crippling his oligarchy. Like, in the end, it's not only are they burying their head in in the sand, they're also actively benefiting bad actors. Yeah, so I think we made a pretty strong case for why an anti-authoritarian foreign policy uh, would overall benefit from Biden winning rather than Trump. I mean, as you said, setting aside the main reason to support Biden, which is just it makes no sense to be against authoritarianism abroad and backing a fascist destruction of American democracy at home. Mm -hmm. Um, But what exactly should we say to try to persuade or do you think that it's pointless i mean is there anything you can you could say to try to to try to persuade a left or alt-right isolationist that the morally just thing to do is to not be neutral in foreign policy and to actively stand up against authoritarians abroad what what could you say to persuade them if anything well i think that I think that it's kind of a fruitless endeavor in a lot of situations because most of those people base their ideology on fallacies. Like people who are against intervention in Syria denied, you know, the chemical weapons use, things like that. They just actively ignore facts in order to justify their ideology. And so if they're unwilling to listen to facts, um, I think there's no moving forward for them. And if you're racist, you're racist. It takes a lot, you know, to change someone's internal biases if you have this, you know, severe dislike for immigrants and you believe immigrants are taking your jobs and that we're spending too much money on foreign aid for people that are starving to death in other countries are being bombed to pieces. Uh, I don't know. I think your moral compass is uh, not functioning and it takes a lot to restore someone's, you know, morality. And I don't think there has to be like this universalism um, in terms of morality, like I think morality is really subjective, but when it comes to, you know, <laughs> actively or passively hating immigrants, um, not caring about people in other countries and only caring about yourself while you say that you are voting for someone you don't know, uh, I don't know how to convince someone like that. And I've, I've been pretty fruitless in convin- uh, convincing people like that. I think the more salient thing to do is to look at people who may not know a lot about foreign policy and kind of explain to them what's going on in other parts of the world and why it's happening and why, you know, human rights abroad are human rights at home and how things that are happening in authoritarian countries come back to bite us ultimately. Like the the biggest 
example, you know, from recent memory for a lot of people is 9-11. But what people don't understand right now is this pandemic that we're living in right now (laughs) is a result of dysfunctional uh, governments allowing uh, this the spread of this pandemic. Firstly, with Xi Jinping, who lied, who imprisoned uh, whistleblower doctors who were trying to stop the spread of this deadly illness that has now claimed over a million lives. And then Donald Trump, who fumbled the response severely, and now over 200,000 Americans are dead. Um, I personally, I don't think, I don't think if Xi Jinping was in power, we would have had this same severe problem that we had. (laughs) It's just amazing to me that people don't understand that what happens in China affects us. We're living in it. Our lives have been affected. People have lost family members because of the prime, the, the leader of China. Like it's mind boggling to me that people don't recognize this. Yeah. And we, had under under the uh, Obama administration, we had our own scientists and doctors on the ground in China who would have found out about this much sooner had Trump not pulled them out as part of his stupid protectionist trade war. Yeah, it's it's very disheartening. And then also the um, we broke up our pandemic response team like a year before this happened. Which is extremely frustrating too. I think which it was, was also bipartisan. Obama built on that from from in, inheriting it from Bush. Yeah, yeah, which is very upsetting, especially after swine flu and Ebola. The fact that we <laughs> dismantled this pandemic response team when just in the past, you know, two decades we've had you know multiple, um, you know, with SARS too. I wasn't really alive for that, but you know, SARS and um, swine flu, which I actually got, and um, Ebola. It's just crazy that we dismantled our pandemic response. And I think that obviously Trump shoulders so much responsibility for what happened in the U.S. But even, you know, the big Democratic pundits, I'm pretty sure even Joe Biden, don't call me on this, said that Donald Trump did not cause the coronavirus, but he caused it to go, you know, very badly in the U.S. And when you look at the cause of the spread of coronavirus, it goes back to our authoritarian dictator, horrible counterpart, Xi Jinping, who is actively genociding his own ethnic minorities, which also seems to be irrelevant to a lot of people in America. Um, Yeah, I mean, we're living with the ramifications as we speak. People have been saying for years, you know, ever since 9-11, like what happens in other countries will come back home. And we'll see it over and over and over and over again. And you're right. People will keep their heads buried in the sand, cover their ears, call it fake news. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite funny to see a lot of, especially the left wing um, isolationists who talk about how America's this evil empire and blah, 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 blah. Um, will nevertheless say like, oh, they can't wait until, you know, the U.S. economy collapses and we can't keep up our military. And then, you know, the imperial Chinese Communist Party is going to come in and take <laughs> us over. Yeah, it's like unbelievable. They, they, People they, they who aren't are isolationist. It's just that they're against democracy and capitalism. Exactly. It's this like whole myth of like bipolar, 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 bipolarity. Oh, my God, I can't speak English the two polars, the two big, you know, superpowers being equal is somehow a good thing when the other global superpower is, you know, doing the one belt, one road house concentration camps in their own country monitors, their own citizens, like to extreme extents. (laughs) Like you mean the Chinese communist party is colonizing the developing world. Oh yeah. I mean, that's exactly what they're doing. Africa, Latin America. uh, They're basically repeating uh, the U.S. foreign policy in the 20th century that people rebuke, rightfully so, a ton of the, the U.S. foreign action in the 20th century was absolutely awful. But now they're applauding when China does it. It's just like, because what is the message dictator here? is better than liberal democratically elected president, apparently. Yeah, apparently. It's just, it's very confusing to me. I, <laughs> it's just like cognitive dissonance to the extreme, and then they justify it with the same arguments as the people on the far right. If there's a news article that they disagree with, or there's evidence that comes out that their favorite dictator is committing human rights abuses, oh, it's fake news. Oh, you know, this is imperialist propaganda. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Um, let me go read RT, which is literal state-sponsored media, 
let me go, you know, read the gray zone or the intercept to get my information about um, what's going on um, in the world. And to yeah, you're right. That's something else they have evidence. in common. The far left and the alt right both call real journalism fake and then prefer actual propaganda. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Like if you're getting and your in some cases, they're RT, reading the same exact propaganda. They both seem to like RT as far as I can tell. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's it's the same when you look at the people who enjoy Tulsi Gabbard, far left and neo-Nazis are her biggest constituency. Yeah, they love they love her. Yeah, I think I think you're right when you said that it's it's a moral issue. Um, And I agree that you're not going to persuade them by talking about facts because they're just going to say fake news. But could you make a moral argument for why your position is because, you know, of course, the isolationists think that they have the moral high ground. So what would be your case for that not being so? I think you have to kind of uh, explain it to them in the way that they would most empathize with it. And that's if it has a personal effect on themselves, since they clearly don't have any, you know, uh, moral connection to people that they don't know and people they can't see. Let's kind of remove and place a hypothetical on them. Um, let's imagine we have a, you know, bipolar, um, world with, you know, China and the U S will you be happy with being placed on even more increased surveillance under the Chinese communist party? Will you be happy that your ability to organize and be an activist will be, you know, curbed? Will you be happy with the fact that you may be the next, um, minority that will be, you know, placed in concentration camps and forced to, you know, culturally relearn and everything. Like, China can't even handle their own ethnic minorities. Imagine a world where the U.S. is subservient to a country that cannot even treat its own minorities with basic humanity. Like, of course, we have racial problems in the U.S. We have severe xenophobia in the U.S., severe racism in the U.S., but China is genociding its ethnic minorities, literal concentration camps. Like this is stuff that is like uh, harkening back to the early 20th century. No one is denying that there are problems in the U S but to say that China is doing better when it comes to, you know, um, racial and ethnic equality, absolutely not. And how will you like it when you may become that next minority that is placed in the second class or third class citizen status you have to stoop to their own level because for them, it's all about preservationism. And for a lot about them, it's this like pseudo um, without words, white supremacy. They're scared of the immigrants coming and taking quote unquote, their jobs, all this stuff. And so we need to focus on ourselves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you just have to make them think that they're the ones that are next. And I think that's what populists utilize, but in the end, it's actually, you know, not true when these populists are saying, you know, all this stuff, you know, the jobs are coming, the jobs are being taken, taken, et cetera. When in reality, it's yeah. the protectionism that places these people in danger. Le- left-wing, left-wing isolationists in particular seem to be motivated by an absolute hatred for the United States of America. I think that's kind of what it is. Like anything that's bad for America is good for them. Seems to be the way they're. Yeah, there's no. Yeah, and again, we're speaking and like you know very because you know we're riddled, we're racism, racist through and through from the beginning, from the foundation, and apparently they don't see the fact that racism is kind of a universal human problem. It's not just here in the United States, as you said. The Chinese government is being deeply racist. Uh, but you know, it's just different shades of brown, so they don't care. I don't. I mean, where like, do they only care about racism when it comes from white people? I, some of them literally say that. They say that there's no such thing as uh, you know a non-white racist. Yeah, it's, I think I think that um, it's it really comes down to this like apathy for people in other countries, and also this kind of like false moral high ground that they hold. Um, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's just really, it's, I, like I said a million times, it's disheartening and you can see all these similarities between this like extreme left wing thinking and this extreme, you know, right wing thinking. Um, yeah. 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 They don't seem to notice it in Europe either. I mean, like Corbyn is a full on anti-Semite. Oh, of of course. Of course. It's, it's again, like you said, there's, there's racism everywhere. And 
you know, I've experienced racism in the U.S. My mother has experienced racism in the U.S. My father has experienced racism in the U.S. But to have white people in America, first of all, explain to me and talk over, you know, immigrants from these countries and say that the problems America has are worse than the problems in places like China and Syria and Venezuela. It's so awful when you put it that way, but that's exactly what they're doing. It's exactly what it is. Like, I've received uh, like racial abuse before, and then white people feel like they have the right to tell me that what's going on here is like leagues and miles worse than the concentration camps in China or Assad, you know, bombing ethnic minorities and ethnic majorities actually uh, to death. Um, It's just, I don't know. It's, it's uh, what's it called? White saviorism, but from the left in a lot of cases. So. Yeah. I mean, would you say, would you say that you experience more, most of that coming from, the the polar extremes that we're talking about i mean i don't i don't know i'm 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 white so i can't really say from personal experience but i i seem i see it coming from the radical left and the alt-right a lot i don't really see a lot of liberal centrists going around you know um bad-mouthing immigrants right yeah i think that i mean personally for me and for my family the issues have come from the right um, like in my own personal experience, but I think it's very present on the far left. And I think the far left is just like slightly better at concealing it. But um, I mean, you can see. Yeah. You like mean this. like the illiberal, right? The basically the Trump voters. Yeah. Like the far right. Yeah. Like very far right. Like alt right. That's like where I've personally and my family has personally experienced those problems. But I think that I think maybe Jewish people in particular see a lot of the far left kind of like racism in practice, like when, you know, synagogues are defaced, um, you know, stuff like that. And I think that comes obviously from the far right and the far left, but um, you know, the far left celebrating synagogues being defaced and all this stuff with, you know, um, people like spray painting free Palestine on, um, you know, Jewish monuments and Jewish temples and everything like, um, I don't know. I think it really just depends on your demographic. And I think online it shows a lot more than it shows with like physical actions in real life, probably for some people, like obviously for some, I'm speaking from my own personal experience. I'm sure there's tons of people, especially, you know, African-American people that face this, you know, horrible discrimination every single day in almost every aspect of their life. Um, But for me, for, you know, and the son of immigrants and as a Muslim and an Arab, um, I've definitely seen it from the far right in real life online, a ton of abuse from the far left, like the accusations, like people think I'm like a multimillionaire with parents who are like oil barons or something. Like my mom owns like a small business and my dad is a doctor who illegally immigrated to the country and had to like train. He was doing like reconstructive surgery on like trauma victims. Like it's really not a um, <laughs> like my parents are not CEOs. They're not oil barons. Uh, oh no, but you're 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 bourgeois. You know you're. you're yeah. Oh yeah, well yeah. Petite. You're going to ally with the oligarchs, but of course, yeah, exactly. ironically, the far left are the ones who are defending literal oligarchs abroad. Oligarchs, exactly, exactly. Like if I am such a tool of the oligarchy, my family such a tool of the oligarchy. I wonder why my parents left and they're not allowed back. Yeah, this has been a great conversation, Kareem. Uh, It was really, really nice talking to you. And I think you brought out an important perspective that a lot of people who listen to this podcast uh, maybe haven't heard before. So thank you for coming on. Um, Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with as we sign out? Um, I am on Instagram and Twitter at Kareem Rafai, K-A-R-E-E-M. R-I-F-A-I. I also publish a, I think, bi-weekly opinion column on the Michigan Daily. So you can see some of my writing on there. And yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for coming on. And as we say, moving forward is our gumbo. Thank you very much for listening to the Moving Forward podcast. Together, 
through these conversations, we are all working to ensure that the Humanity First movement keeps moving forward. If you haven't yet, please visit our website at movingforwardpod.com, where you can support our Patreon. We will use those funds to advertise, to grow our audience so more people hear these important conversations. Thank you very much.